Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will. Turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. We'll focus on verses 42 through 47. Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You know, many of us have mixed opinions about instructions, especially instruction books. I would say many of us have mixed emotions about them, especially some of us guys. I know that we're supposed to read the instructions. Right? There were two amens, maybe. But many of us do not read the instructions. A lot more amens, obviously. Especially us guys. But I have found out, and I have, even though I... I, I unwillingly, I, I guess when I come to the, to the, to the instructions, I, I kind of unwillingly look at them now, but I have learned that it will really save me time in the long run, you know, to know what to do next, because I will put some things together and I'll be thinking to myself, okay, what's coming on, what's coming next? And of course, Leslie will have the instructions and she'll be trying to tell me, and I don't want to listen to what she's saying at that time, only that time in my life. We've been married almost 20, so I've, I've learned. But, um, you know, instructions kind of help me get to the next point. When she tells me what it says, then I can kind of move to the next point. And sometimes in the church life, in the disciples' life, in the believer's life, it's kind of like, what do we do next? What are we supposed to do next in this process? Because discipleship is a process. You come to faith in Christ. You accept Christ as your Lord, just as many did on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people came and gave their lives to Christ. And then it was kind of like, what do I do next? Well, obviously, they followed the Lord in believer's baptism. They were baptized in water. You might would say they put their spiritual wedding ring on. And what they did in that public demonstration of a covenant is they said, we stand with Jesus, our Lord. He is our Lord. But yet there are still steps that were to be taken. Because God calls us to be saved. He calls us to follow him in the first step of discipleship called baptism. But then there are still other steps that come in our lives. Our salvation might have been affected by the grace and the faith that came into our lives, but yet God is not done with us. God wants to continue to speak to us and work within us. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, he wants us specifically to find a local church of believers where we can, we can encourage one another, challenge one another, worship with one another, where he wants us to live life together. That's what I see in Acts chapter 2. Now, I know some of you say, well, now, Reggie, you said a few weeks ago that Acts is not just an instructional book, that it's more descriptive than it is prescriptive. And I hear what you say, and I am reminded of those words. But when I look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and then I pair that with the rest of the New Testament, I see very clearly normative practices within the church life. Normative practices within the community of believers. And I want to share that with you today because these who had been saved, these who had been baptized had a next step. They had to do something else. They were called to be a part of a local church. Notice this beginning verse 42. 
and they. Underline that, they. In other words, they are together. They're, they're meeting together. They are worshiping together. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So here you have all of these baby Christians, all of these new believers, all of these converts to the faith. And it says that those who are still there in Jerusalem, those who had been added to the number of the 120, they are now coming together. Again, there in verse 42, it says they. In verse 44, it says all who believed were together. It was the idea of community. It was the idea of having connections with other believers. When we come into faith, we come into connection with other believers and other disciples. That's the way God intended it. Think about it just a moment. When Jesus was here on earth and he was about his earthly ministry, what did he do? He spent time with this ragtag bunch of individuals we call the apostles or disciples. And he invested in them. They spent time together. It is very natural for us to think that when we come into the faith community, that we are spending time together. That we are part of what some would called the family of God, that we are a part of the church, the called out ones. We need community. I believe that. We need community. We need connections. We need relationships. I am absolutely convinced that God did not intend for us to be out on an island by ourselves, but rather he intended for us to be a part of a vital community that loved one another, that loves him, and that forms meaningful relationships. In the very beginning, what did God say when he looked at Adam? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. And it wasn't. Obviously, in that case, God provided him, Eve, a wife. But I would say to you, it is just the idea that God has fashioned us and formed us to be a part of relationships. To me, I think that is one of the greatest blessings that he's given us here on this earth is that we can live in relationship with other people that we don't have to do this by ourselves that we have other people that we can rely on other people that we can build that relationship with it is the connection that we have I would say to you and I've got to be very careful with this but I would say to you that the connection that we have as a group of believers, a, a church family, that our connection as a spiritual family should be as great, perhaps even greater than our own physical family. I would say that to you. You know how difficult that is for me to say today? Especially when my mom and dad are here in the congregation. 
Somebody said I have already kind of just whittled down my illustrations that I can use since they're here, all right? I'm not able to give you the full dose this morning. But it is so important that we recognize that we need community, that we need the people. It said that they came together, that they were assembled together, that they decided that they had to be together. And this was God's design. This was God's, this was God's plan for them to come together, a family. I pointed out this week in my tidings, some of you read my tidings. I'm proud of you. There you go, Curtis. That's a check by your name, buddy. (laughs) In my tidings, I pointed out that a family is multi-generational. When you go to family reunions, you have kids and you have maybe parents and then you have grandparents and you have all of that. In the family of God in the church, for example, when you think about that analogy, when you think about that metaphor of the family, it is the idea that we have different generations, different kinds of people who are coming together, who are worshiping, who are studying, who are seeking him. And today is a reminder of that. So look at all these who are celebrating their 50 plus years of marriage and how grateful we are, just as Dale said earlier. To have 90, basically two couples associated with our church who had been married for that long, it is incredible to think of it. In the second service in a few moments, uh, that second time slot in the gathering, we will actually commission 70 young college students as they go just in a few weeks to beach reach there in Panama City Beach. We're going to probably welcome the tech baseball team in the gathering, in the second service. Isn't that amazing? How many, I'll say again, how many churches can talk about having 90 plus or 90 plus individuals who are celebrating their 50th anniversary and beyond, and also in the same day, commission 70 college students to go on mission? I just say to you, we're blessed. And we ought to give thanks to God We have to be intentional about continuing to be multi-generational because we are the family. We're the family. Never, ever, ever did God nor those disciples believe that you could live an existence outside of the community of faith. I I do not believe that. I do not believe believe that they thought or they held that somehow we could live our faith outside of the community of believers. As a matter of fact, we're told that they came together. They came together as a body, as a group. I'm going to get more into the functions of it in a moment. We look at this passage in more detail. But let me just say, there's something that happens here with the physical presence of people that cannot happen on social media or through the television medium or through the internet or through any other way. There's something that happens when the people of God are able to gather together. There are so many, even who watch this program on TV, or maybe they listen to my message online. There are so many that wish that they could be here, but they cannot physically anymore. 
As a matter of fact, there were several of our couples who would love to have been here to celebrate this this morning, and yet they could not be here. And it's certainly a ministry, that television ministry and that, and that online ministry, but I'm just going to say to you, there's nothing like being a part of the local believers who come together. And, and I'm going to tell you, those who are now having to experience this service through such mediums like TV and all of that, they will tell you the same thing. There's nothing like being with the body of Christ. Because when you are hurting, that screen, that computer screen cannot reach out and hug you or speak encouragement to you. Not like your fellow believers within the church context. It is important once again to discover the importance and the significance of the local church. And that's what I see here in Acts. They were coming together. There's a commitment that we make to one another. We live in the most connected world that we have ever lived in, and yet we are least connected than we ever have been. Relationally. But it's within the church that we experience it. A commitment that we make within the church life. What do we do in the community? What, how are we intentional and purposeful? This is what the scripture teaches us. It says that they come together. Notice it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What do we do when we come together? First of all, we study together. Now, I recognize that I could really just use the rest of the message right here. But I want to give you an overview of the functions, of the purposes of what we do now within the church. First, we study together. It says that they were about the apostles' doctrine. That they were trying to understand and, and, and receive the teaching of the apostles. Now, we don't have the apostles per se with us today, physically. But we still have their teaching. Did you know in the New Testament, every book of the New Testament was written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostle to capture the teaching, to capture the doctrine of God's truth. We commit ourselves to study together, just like we are this morning. For many years, we've had a motto, come gather around the word. That is to express our belief that the word is the authority of our faith and practice and that we have a responsibility to study it even when we come. If we want to look like him, remember every disciple's goal is that you look more like Jesus every day. That, that's your goal. That's my goal for us as a church that we look more like Jesus. How are we going to look more like Jesus if we don't even know what Jesus said? How are we going to look more like Jesus if we do not know what he taught to us? What are we going to do if we are not engaged in his truth? We are to study together. We're to study the truth. And there is a truth. Uh, man, I could, again, I could just kind of camp out here. But there is truth. Some people will say, well, they're just so sincere in what they believe. Do you know that you can be sincerely wrong? Right? How many LSU fans we have? No, you don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't. I didn't say anything else. Don't get on me. 
You need to know the truth. And we need to study together as a group, as a people. As we study together, we are able to grow and we're able to grow into his image. It says they, they're new believers, they're new converts, they're coming into the church. So what do they need? They need some sound doctrine. They need to hear the apostles teaching. They need to study together. The word of God makes a difference in our lives. This last week, I did go back and I really read through Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life because many of you know that he takes this passage and he'll speak about the purpose of our lives and the purpose of the church life. And as I was reading through it, I I found this particular quote by Rick Warren. He said this. He said, the Bible, though, is far more than a doctrinal guidebook. God's word generates life creates faith, produces change, frightens the devil, causes miracles, heals hurts, builds character, transforms circumstances, imparts joy, overcomes adversity, defeats temptation, infuses hope, releases power, cleanses our minds, brings things into being, and guarantees our future forever. We cannot live without the Word of God, and never should we take it for granted. You should consider it as essential to your life as food itself. They in the church, they studied it. They went about the apostles' doctrine because they knew it was so significant and important in their lives. And if you and I can spend four hours a day on social media, we could take a little more time than four minutes a day to study his word. We need to hear what God is saying to us. We must study together. But we do it individually, but we study it again together in the church context. Like this morning, as we go through his word just in this setting. But even more so, how important it is for our small groups to study God's word. How important it is for what we call Sunday school. Where you get into smaller groups and you can read through the scripture. You have a teacher and you can talk about it a little bit too. Maybe you ask a question. You can hear the teacher teach, and maybe you have a question that you can ask. Because most of you don't, don't ask me questions during my sermons in here. Most of you don't. But there you can break it apart. And you can study. It's studying together. And, and isn't it a blessing? Look, I've been a part of small groups through the years. Isn't it a blessing that you can dive into the Scripture with other people who are of like faith, who are trying to seek the truth? And you can talk about it and you can grow together. That's the reason I always, uh, oh, I, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to. I always tell people, if you only got one hour a week to give me, now you should have more than one hour. But if you only got one hour, go to Sunday school. People look at me and say, whoa, you're telling people not to listen to you. I didn't say don't listen to me preach. I hope that you would come, but I know the benefit of a small group Bible study that can change people's lives. You need to be a part of a small group. It's this, these were, were individuals who were committed to one another, who were studying God's Word. They, we, we study together. We share together in the church. It says um, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship. The word in the original language is koinonia. It means that which we hold in common. Usually when we talk about fellowship, we talk about food. 
You know it's true. When we say in the church, we're having fellowship after church tonight. If you were to show up and you were to walk into that fellowship hall and all you saw were other people, I know you wouldn't necessarily say anything, but you're thinking to yourself, where is the food? They said, fellowship, I was going to have supper. I'll tell you what, I brought all of my kids tonight so they could eat here and we didn't have to go out to eat. There's no food. You know it's the case. You think about fellowship, you're thinking about food. But the koinonia fellowship of the New Testament, something that went even beyond food. Oh, they ate. Listen, it does say that they went from house to house breaking bread together and, and, and enjoying that, that time together. And, and, and there is something. There is something about sharing a meal with someone else. There is the intimacy of it. I do not believe it was by mistake that God ordained one of the two ordinances of the church to be a meal, the Lord's Supper. Because there's intimacy in the idea of a meal. There's intimacy of sitting down with somebody else at a, at a table and visiting with them and talking with them and eating with them. And it says they went from house to house breaking bread. And I do believe that some of those were just meals and some of those were the observances of the Lord's Supper. That they were taking that together because there was some type of unity that they had, commonality. Later in the passage, it says that they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, singleness of heart, that their hearts were unified like one heart, that they were doing this together. Now, Frank Stagg has said that this word for simplicity, it, it can be used in a negative kind of way. When you read through the book of Acts, this idea of one mind can destroy can describe like a violent mob that you see that comes against the believers and somehow they only have this one mind and it can be a bad thing. And Frank Stagg points out here, the reason this is a good thing is because they were of one mind and united in Christ. That makes all the difference. Is that you have one mind as it, as it is centered and focused on Jesus. So when you're eating and you're fellowshipping together and you're coming together, what holds us together as a church, as a people? Christ Jesus. That's what holds us together. Even when there are differences. And I pray that there are differences in the church. That we look different, that we have different backgrounds, that we have different personalities. I pray we do because the scripture teaches us that through that diversity we can do a great more ministry. But yet in the midst of diversity is where we see unity because we come around Christ Jesus, right? It is within the church that you, you don't care about one's social or economic status. It is within the church that you do not care about their background. It is in the church that you do not try to attribute all these extra things to certain specific people. It is in the church that you find that we are in fellowship together because of what Christ Jesus did for each and every one of us. And every one of us came the same exact way. Because all had sinned. Listen to me. Every individual had sinned. And yet he brought us together through his grace and through the faith that we had. And we hold it in common with one another. We share it together. 
in that true sense of fellowship. And even in united prayers itself, because I think that word koinonia goes with the idea of breaking bread and the fellowship, but also it says in verse 42, prayers. We're unified in prayers. I think later on I'm going to come back and touch on this in a few weeks. I'm going to look at this again, but there is something powerful about the people of God being united in their prayers. There's something that God honors for his people to be united in their prayer life. For us to pray. For people who are sick, people who are going through loss, people who are so lonely, people who are experiencing spiritual trial and discouragement, people who are affected by addiction, people who are just broken, to pray specifically for them with unity. It makes a difference. And I'm just going to tell you, to be a part of a local church where you could do that and pray, to have that shared commonality, it says they came together. They studied. They shared. We studied together. We share together. And hopefully we see together. Verse 43, or actually verse 40. Uh, four says now all who believed were together and they had all things in common that fellowship kind of idea and verse 45 says they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need now some of you read through this and you think oh this seems like a communal type of living that they have and is this supposed to be prescriptive for us today L let me say to you that when you look at the early church this is not the way they always did it and even here they will retain ownership of houses and certain things later on you'll see the idea of Barnabas bringing that which he has to help the church and to, to provide for those who are in need the great principle here don't, don't get down in the weeds the great principle is that they looked for everyone that they saw had need and they did whatever they could to help them. That's the, that's the basic truth. They could see together. They, they could see the needs that were there around them and they tried to help them. Specifically, okay, hear me out. Specifically, they attempted to help other believers. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't help people outside the church. Not saying that so, at, whatsoever. I think we should. But I will tell you that we have a specific obligation and responsibility to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's what they were doing. They were looking at their brothers and sisters in Christ, and some of them were being persecuted. Some of them were in poverty because of the decision that they had made. They couldn't work in certain places. They were going through difficulties. And what would happen, what would happen is that they would help those who are poor, persecuted. You and I need to open our eyes to the people around us. We need other believers. Now, now I will say this to you. You and I should not wait for the collective church to help somebody. Did you hear me? I've heard people in the past say things like, oh, we should have done so much as a church. And I'll be honest, this is what I always think. Well, why didn't you do it? And I have said it a time or two. Just a time or two. So why would you say? Because 
you are the church. I'm the church. When I see my brother and sister hurting, it's not just for me to come up here and tell the office and say, hey, I need y'all to write a check. You know what? God has given me blessing in my life and resources. He's called me to be the person that I should be as I help my brother and sister in Christ. You and I are the church. Now, I'm not saying we can't collectively do it. We should. We should be people who are benevolent as a church and as people. But I just want to remind you that when you walk out of these doors, you are the church. We don't wait on the church's schedule to do ministry or missions. We ought to be doing ministry or missions at every day of our life. We don't wait on the church to say, hey, we need this help in this area. If I see it, I want to help my brother and sister in Christ. We need to see. We need to see together. You are not responsible for everyone in the body of Christ, but you are responsible to them. God expects you to do whatever you can whatever you can to help them. Fourth, got to move on. My dad said he's got to get back home before too long, so. We, share, we, we study together, we share together. That's what it says here. We see together the need that is there. We sing together. It says, verse 47, that they were praising God. They were praising God. The word praise means to speak of the excellence of a person. To speak of the excellence of a person. It was a vocal, verbal expression that you would speak the excellence. I believe, according to the Jewish tradition and obviously our New Testament tradition and church tradition, that means in many cases we, were, we, we, we sing together. Because what we want to do is proclaim the excellency of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine if we were bottled up and not have the ability to, to praise? C.S. Lewis described it this way when he was writing. He was thinking about this idea of praise and worship and the excellency of Christ. And he said this. He said, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than they do a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke, he said, and find no one to share it with. He said, it's frustrating, isn't it? When you see something so great and grand, or you hear something so wonderful that you want to share it, and yet you seem to be bottled up. That's the way our lives should be. When, when we can't praise him as we should, because we have found the best thing that could ever come into our lives. We have found the salvation of the Lord Jesus. We have found how beautiful and wonderful he is. And how we should want to praise him and sing about him. Francis Chan said, What comfort is it to worship a God that you and I don't have to exaggerate about? Think about that statement. I don't have to exaggerate 
the beauty and the wonder of God? Because even as I try to describe it, and even as I try to imagine it, I never touch the true wonder and glory of the God I serve. I don't have to try to exaggerate him. He's great enough on his own. He blows our minds. And we should come with everything we have to praise him. And there's something special again about corporate worship. I, I enjoy singing. I, I really do. I, I, love, I love in my car to every now and then sing. So like when something's on, I like to, I like to just, especially when I'm by myself, I'm going down through there. Nobody can judge me. But I may seem strange when you drive by me and you see me like that sometimes. I love to do that. But oh, I love to be able to sing with the people of God. I really do. I love it. I love this morning to be able to sing. I love to go in the gathering. I, I really don't, I know I'm odd, but I really don't even care what kind of music it is. As long as it's Christ-centered, and it is speaking the truth of the gospel. If that's what it's doing, I can sing it. And I love it. My God is so big, he can take all forms of worship. Because it is praising God, right? It's praising to him. Someone came some time ago to a pastor and said, yeah, I just don't like the music. The pastor said, that's okay. It wasn't for you anyway. I come into this place, I'm not coming for me. I hope you're not coming for you. What I want to do is come for him. I want to praise him and I want to sing him. And when my brothers and sisters are singing and when I am tuning my instrument inside to be able to glorify him, there is something that is tremendous about the people of God bringing their voices together. It says they were praising God. We sing together. And we speak together. We speak together. It says, having favor. That word is grace, kairos. Having grace with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now I say to you that we should not become so enamored with those within that we forget those without. And it says that they came together and they studied together and they shared together and they would see together and they would sing together but then they would go out collectively and they would speak together about who Christ Jesus was and about his salvation. Obviously they did because it says that each day there were those being added to the church. Being added every day a witnessing component of the church's life was demonstrated. People recognized their testimonies. They recognized the church's faithfulness as they would go out and people would come and give their lives to Christ. What a powerful testimony we can have when we're united together and we're sharing his love and compassion with others. Hey, I will say this. God has given us a great spirit of unity in five plus years that I've been here, I am so grateful for that. I do not take it for granted, 
and I pray for continued unity often because what the devil would love to do is to divide his family, divide, divide Christ's people. Oh, he'd love to because somehow it weakens our testimony. People without, they hear certain things. And, but when you're united and you're able to share together the truth of Christ, there are those who would come. And they would be apart. Isn't that what you pray? Well, we got so many now. Yeah, yeah, we need more. I had a guy tell me one time when I was pastoring in Zachary said, oh, we're too big as it is. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we already too big. We, we need to do something. I said, well, we going to tell the people that come and say, I want to accept Christ. You're going to just tell them, no, we ain't got room for you. I did. I looked at him and I said, that is the strangest and craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Can you imagine? And I pointed him to Pentecost. It said that 3,000 were saved that day. So we ain't even hit the benchmark yet. 3,000? Let's get to 3,000 then we'll talk about it. We need to be witnessing daily. Because we want to see more and more and more added to his family. It's not about numbers. But oh, Dr. Ronald Meeks at Blue Mountain College used to tell us, behind every number there's a person. And you don't forget that. It's not about the numbers, he would say. But you don't forget about the people that are behind those numbers that are lost and when they come to faith in Christ, that is a soul that is precious, that has been saved, that has been redeemed for all of eternity. It says that they were speaking together. We live in a community of faith. We live in a family. We commit ourselves to one another. We commit ourselves in this next step after salvation. I'm just going to say to you, those of you who've been saved and maybe you have been baptized and you're looking for, you need to find a local church. We'd love to have you here, but you need to find a local church because you need a place where you can study together, where you can share together, where you can see together, where you can sing together where you can speak together. There's no place like being a part of the local family of God. But we never forget that. We, may we commit our lives to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the great blessings of it. Thank you for allowing us to experience true community and life together. And I pray, Lord, even as we go into our Bible studies in a moment, that you would encourage and challenge friendships and relationships, that you would use that moment even to help us to go deeper into your word. Father, we pray that you would look at us as temple, because Lord, there are a lot of great churches in our community and beyond. We believe that. I believe that. But Lord, all we're responsible for right now is who we are, where we are. And God, I pray that when you look at us, 
that you would look with favor and that we would be committed to you and to your purpose and that we would not be sidetracked by all the other things that come at us, but Lord, we would truly fulfill the next step, the, the mission, the purpose that you have for us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that we can be a part of this family and help us, unify us, empower us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.